Hello, this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property, supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. Live every Sunday at 10am, YouTube, Facebook and our website, propertymatterstv.co.uk. If you're watching on our website, don't forget that Google review button. Leave us a comment there if you would be so kind. And also you can leave your comments if you're watching on social media just below where you're watching us now. If you'd like to email, it's hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk. And Property Matters is also available as a podcast every Monday at 10 on those platforms you see over on the side there and also on Dilsert Radio as well. Let's take a look at the week's property news with our property expert, Joe Joshi. Morning, Joe. Good morning, Paul. Good morning to everyone. What a nice, bright, sunny day. Um, finally, a bit of sunshine and finally a bit of summer, maybe, although it's uh, only short-lived. I think uh, the shorter days start on the 21st of June, so we're on a reverse cycle. <laughs> reverse cycle. So, no. so enjoy, so enjoy, enjoy uh, you know, what you're going to get before the thunderstorms come in. But yes, we've no. got plenty of storms in property matters. So nothing like setting the mood at the beginning of the show for what's to come. <laughs> oh, it's difficult to find some good stories in property at the moment, uh, but there's some interesting stories. That's the interesting thing from today's show, uh, certainly. The average age of people expecting to get shot of their mortgage is close to 60, but more than one in 10 reckon they will be paying it off in their retirement years. This is new research. Among over 55s who still hold a mortgage, more than 5 million people believe they will be running up to retirement without having repaid it, as a growing number of Brits have debt that is weighing them down. According to the latest study from Aviva, two-thirds, 67% of Brits, admit to having debt that's weighing them down, while 9% of those surveyed haven't got a clue how much they owe in outstanding debts. And worryingly, this figure rises to more than one in six, 16% of those aged 45 and over. Overall, one in seven, 15%, feel their debt is out of control or they have no way of paying it off. This figure rises to 18% of over those aged uh, 45 to 54, while 11% of over 55 say they are struggling. Most common form of debt, Joe, is uh, credit card or credit card or store debt, 32% or 30% of the over 55s, followed by 16% who have personal loans and 15% who have overdrafts. 10% say they've unpaid household or utility bills, which is interesting. And 11% of the over 55s age group have mortgage debt in the final decade or so before retirement. It's a, 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 a picture we all recognise, I suspect, Joe. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it's been kind of building up for some some time, um, in, in my opinion, from a from a agency point of view and from the property point of view, because we see that we see that in a conversation that we're having with people uh, on a one to one basis individually as to where they are and what their circumstances are. And of course, many have actually had to extend the life of the mortgage um or, or are having to consider extending the life of the mortgage so an average mortgage term uh, is 25 years um but some depending on age may be at 15 years and of course now with this um uh cost of living and everything else uh, that's been happening in the, in the recent times and and before that because there has been really one of the one of the biggest pitfalls has been that there's no exit route when mortgages were taken out many, many years ago, people used to do um, sort of endowment mortgages or interest only or have some kind of plan that they thought was going to be the way that they're going to pay their mortgage off before or at retirement age. Um, and none of the above um, really worked. So 
um, most people cashed in their endowments because they really weren't doing what they were supposed to do, or they needed it at the time to pay for something else and thought, well, actually there's 15, 20, 30,000 pounds of value in my endowment. It's not really doing what it's supposed to do. I can't see it paying off my, you know, 200,000 pound mortgage, <coughs> whatever that might be. So they cashed it in and, and hoped that, um, you know, there will be another solution. Uh, and there is no other solution, in all honesty. Uh, interest only became interest only. And at the end of the interest only time, they either can potentially, and that's what's happening at the moment, is um, extending the time. So from 25, you know, they might now add another 10 years to make it 35 or maybe even 40 years, which takes them way over and above what is their retirement age. So if your retirement age is 60, 65 years of age, uh, it's now going to become almost 75, 80 years of age in order to make sure that you can repay um, that mortgage, that interest only mortgage. Um, so yeah, it, it's been brewing and, and building up. And of course, um, credit cards are fundamentally what people begin to live off because of the cost of everything has gone so high. What they are doing is that the salary that they might be earning is just kind of keeping them afloat. So they, that's what's gonna pay the bills and and, and, and just live. And um, then they're using the credit cards to actually do all of the other things. So they're constantly on that, you know, um, uh, track running um, a bit like a hamster in, in a wheel. They're just going round and round and round in circles on the basis that they think, well, I'll pay it off one month and then I'll do it again the next month and so forth. And so forth. But those costs are exorbitant. I mean, the interest rates on those credit cards are, are huge. Um, and that's just where where the um, the market has been at this moment in time. I can't see that uh, changing. There are ways that people could consider doing that, but um, at this moment, there is not much that is going to be good news in terms of how we're going to get fast forward. An interesting proposal going through um, as a petition at the moment, Joe. I read it uh, this week about the fact that 23,000 people have already signed the petition. And it's a petition to get uh, the ability for people to pay their mortgage like they pay their pension from their salary. So deduct the mortgage directly before the tax um, and national insurance comes off their salary. So uh, therefore, that would reduce their tax burden um, and, and and obviously make the house more affordable, technically speaking. Um, and that, they say, will help first-time buyers. They've got to get to 100,000 uh, signatures, of course, to... Uh, to get it debated in Parliament, but 23,000 is a reasonable start. What do you think about that idea? Well, I think, look, anything that's going to help first-time buyers get onto the uh, first run of the property ladder, I, I'll always endorse, because without that actually happening, there isn't really a property market in the UK. It is very important and paramount that the first-time buyers get the chance, every chance that can be presented to them. And if it's through you know, this source or any other source that allows them to get on, then I'm going to be all for it. In terms of, uh, you know, later on in life, I don't think it's particularly, I mean, other than the fact that the um, uh, the mortgage payer will get a benefit um, in kind that they won't be paying tax um, on a payment that may be going through their salary. But the government aren't going to allow that. They, you know, they live off the, the back of the property market and, and the, and the uh, taxes that they get from them. So 
the chances of that happening for you know second third or buy to let kind of or investor type of persons is very highly unlikely um, and that's probably where the petition may fall short but if the petition was um, <coughs> directive simply at the first time buyer then I you know I would certainly endorse it because it gives them a chance to get on and as long as they get on then the the system moves up to the next run of the ladder and so forth but without that happening I don't think that would actually um, be the right thing yeah there are questions around obviously what the self-employed would do of course that's one thing and um, secondly what would happen with interest only um, whether they would allow the interest, I presume they would allow the interest to come out of the salary. Um, but I also noticed this week, Joe, that uh, 50% of 50 MPs, 50 Tory MPs have uh, urged Rishi Sunak to uh, dump stamp duty across the board. So uh, they're saying that uh, the money that people use to buy a property is already taxed. So it's a double tax on people who want to spend their money on property and is unfair. It's an interesting point. Yes, I mean, look, stamp duty has been a bane in everyone's life, uh, and the only beneficiaries on it, of course, is the HMRC uh, Treasury. They're the ones that really are getting um, absolutely billions of pounds year in, year out. And the chances of ever considering abolishing it is probably more less chances than me being struck by lightning. I mean, it's just not going to happen in that in that sense then i'm probably going to get struck by lightning quicker than like that, that that's going to get abolished and um because it's, it's money for old ropes paul they're, they're never going to do that what they can do is they can consider and they will do it they will do it watch this space you know before the year is through the autumn budget or something they will throw a little you know curveball into the marketplace because they'll need to and they use and they have all successive governments have used stamp duty as a yo-yo you know they they take it out take it on reduce it, increase it, whatever they want to do when they feel that it's right for them to make sure that the housing market starts to motivate people to get back on the, uh, the property ladder. At the moment, it is very challenging um, for most people through cost of living, through the fact that borrowing um, instruments used in order to calculate what somebody can actually afford, they call it affordability, um, and so many other avenues that actually stop people borrowing the amount that they want. Um, I th I'm not sure if it was last week's programme, but it was recently, I mean, it, I, I mentioned that one of our buyers, it took them six months to get a mortgage offer, and then they were actually allowed to have it until the 6th of June. So I think it was 10 days you've got to exercise it, or it was going to get taken away. But well, we know that, you know, last week alone, six to eight hundred products were taken off the market off the shelf for the mortgage market primarily because they're so uncertain as to when and and how much the interest rates will change so it's a yo-yo it's this move it's a moving target at the moment the mortgage market and so therefore it's not helping anybody um to do that with that in mind the stamp duty obviously is going to be lessened because if there's no housing market the stamp duty is not going to be coming in as quick and thick and fast as the government are used to, especially <coughs> during the pandemic years, you know, when the market was strong, they were not, um, they were absolutely, you know, cashing in on that, that, that position. But now it's very quiet. So I anticipate before the year is through that, you know, they'll either abolish, not abolish, but they will, you know, for a given time, get rid of the stamp duty for first time buyers, you know, and potentially reduce it for maybe investors because they've now taken not only the first time buyers off 
the Richter scale, they've also got rid of all the investors that were investing for all the buy-to-lets because everybody's just dumping the buy-to-let market because it's just too expensive. So, but I, I'm pretty certain by the end of this year, beginning of next, because it's election year, you will see some dramatic changes. But again, they will not be long-term, they will be short-term. Interesting what the uh, Treasury's response was to the Tory MPs was the fact that they said um, that uh, stamp duty, over half, just about half of all the transactions don't have any stamp duty payable anyway. And second, they said that stamp duty is a valuable contribution to help run the NHS and public services, etc, etc, etc. But what I don't understand is why, why homeowners should be exclusively, well, additionally paying on top of what they're paying in their salary as well. It, that seems a kind of strange thing to say, that the tax is there to help fund services and, 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 and homeowners are having to pay double. Absolutely. That is, that is definitely wrong. Um, in their in their reply and and in in the, in the purpose of it definitely uh, you know we are already paying taxes on our salaries and what we're earning and then to go and pay another tax uh, for the privilege of buying a property and then perhaps another tax for the privilege of selling a property and let alone all the other stealth taxes that are in between those journeys I mean pretty much everything that you want to um, talk about buy. VAT. I mean, there's a tax on anything and everything um, that that they do. So the government do very well out of the the, the public in terms of you know the taxes are concerned. Um, but of course, what doesn't take people away from the property market is that they will never save as what they can uh, theoretically save through the ownership of property. So if you bought a property <coughs> back I don't know, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, we, could, we know that they would have never saved if that house is now worth, or that property or flat is now worth, let's say they bought it for 100,000 as an example, and it's now worth 250,000, they would never have saved 150,000 pounds in their ex or normal lifetime because of what taxes are and what little salaries they are and what the cost of living is gonna be. So that is the driver always for most people to want to buy a property. A, it's their own home until they pay the mortgage off, of course, because otherwise it's joint ownership with the lender. And B, it means that, you know, when they do sell or they come to retirement age or, or anything happens like a separation or whatever the circumstances might be, there is some equity that needs to be divided out of the value of that home. And that is your takeaway. That's what you're actually taking away and thinking to yourself, well, you know, I wouldn't have got that had this not been the case. But of course, as soon as you do all those things, there are tax liabilities as well, or some tax liabilities. I know that, you know, owning your home and having a capital gains tax on it is, is not there because it is your main residence. But if it is no longer your main residence um, and you have others, then you are liable for tax. It's interesting comparing these uh, figures and obviously Aviva say that, you know, debt's centre stage because obviously interest rates have been rising uh, rapidly in, in the last year or so. Um, but they're saying um, they did, ran this survey in 2021 and they're saying in this year, 23, more than half of people aged 45 to 54, that was 52%, said that their debt had increased this year. Um, which is more than double the figure back in 2021. When they asked the same question in 2021, just one in four, 25% said that their debt had increased. Um, the biggest proportion of people, 38, said that they had cut back on uh, non-essential monthly spending, like luxury goods, holidays, entertainment, etc. 
Um, and uh, twice as many people, 21% compared to 11%, worked overtime or got a second job. Reassuringly, many people, 13%, said they had sought advice from debt services or helplines compared to only 7% in 2021. And people are using uh, things like uh, loans, credit cards, families, um, uh, comes up very high as well. 11% asked family or friends to help out when they got a big bill, a surprise bill, and, and what the ONS Office of National Statistics call a big bill is anything over 850 that's a one-off payment. Uh, and they measure this to see how, um, how um, what liquidity people have in their lives. Um, and these figures are all on the way down. I guess, obviously, you know, with interest rates rising and uh, the bills that we've been facing, it's no surprise, is it, really? Not at all. And I mean, look, look what has happened just even in, in, in the last six months alone. Um, we have been absolutely bashed around by all the uh, extra burdens of costs of, on, and the cost of living. And of course, um, how, how affordability has affected that for people to borrow. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's uh, 10 consecutive interest rate rises in a short space of time. The cost of you know, your electric and gas <clears throat> and your rates and, and cost of food all of those things are just just literally been compounded in the last six months and we are not out of that woodwork at all by any stretch of the imagination especially you know when some of those fixed rates come to an end in the next you know few months you know those people are going to be suffering so you know it's, it's not going to go away quickly uh it came like a tsunami with the uh mistrust's um intervention um, and it's not going to go away just like that. It's going to take some time to actually, you know, drain out all that rubbish and get, get to some point. But the opportunity rose for the banks at that time to start whacking up the interest rates. We had it good. The interest rates was really low, at, you know, and I think most people, I've always said that most people were kind of um, expecting and almost prepared for the interest rate to to go up because they knew that it was it was very low but what they were never prepared for was um all the other costs like the utility costs utility costs and um uh the rates and the cost of living the food the food prices that have just gone through the roof all of those things were not bargained for which came at the same time as as the interest rates so yeah those are the, the sort of collectively that became incredibly expensive to manage and I think it'll be a while before we get through that. But certainly, um, if, if the housing market doesn't get some sort of direction in the next six months to a year, then you will find that that will be where the, the, the real problems start to come. Interestingly, uh, there's more bad news for landlords this week. Um, Apparently, the if, you, if if they're worried about the abolishment of uh, abolition of um, Section Twenty One, then they want to take a look at what's going on in the courts at the moment. Because apparently, what we have now is a severe bailiff crisis. There's not enough bailiffs to carry out the actions of the courts. So this is uh, Paul Champlina from Landlord Action saying the eviction um, that the court system is on the brink of a severe bailiff crisis as an increasing number of county court bailiff evictions are being put on hold or cancelled, leaving landlords facing an even longer wait and higher costs to evict tenants. 
Whilst the Ministry of Justice claims delays and cancellations are amid safety concerns due to a lack of personal protection equipment, PPE for bailiffs, Landlord Action says cracks in the court system started years ago. This is just the beginning and without intervention, uh, the problem is going to get worse and worse, says Paul. Uh, the historic lack of investment in the courts is now being compounded by changes in regulation and rising interest rates sparking landlord panics, landlord panic to exit the rental market. In 2023, the first quarter of this year, landlord repossessions in the county courts rose by 69%. That's extraordinary. In comparison to the same quarter in 2022, this is before Section 21 is abolished and more eviction cases end up in the courts. So that's extraordinary, isn't it? County court repossessions up 69% in the first quarter of this year. And that is uh, only the buy-to-let uh, market there. That's, that's landlords wishing to uh, evict their tenants who have not been paying their rent, who no longer are in a position to pay their, their rent because of the cost of living has gone so um, expensive. The system of the Section 21 notice is the only way to get out of that right now. Imagine if that has been abolished and, you know, Gove gets his way to put, get rid of the Section 21A, 21 um, notice. Uh, these people would have to wait and go through even more pain to get a tenant out of their property. So um, that's why there has been this sharp rise um, because there was a backlog of people that didn't pay during the um, pandemic and they couldn't do it. The government had a moratorium to say there will be no eviction, we cannot do this. So people were sitting at home enjoying the fruits of someone else's labour and their property but not actually paying their rent. And because they weren't paying their rent, um, landlords have now all, you know, it, this is a catch-up. So the, from the 2022 to 2023 increase <clears throat> is a catch-up fundamentally of all of the landlords that couldn't get those people out over um, 19, 20 and 21 as such, those three years of, of the pandemic. Um, and also it has been accelerated primarily because of Gove's thing about get, abolishing the Section 21, because they know that if that came in, you're just not going to be able to get any further, any quicker. Um, and obviously there are other routes, but every time it's, it's costing the landlord more money through the legal system to try and get any um, uh, recourse on, on or, or getting any evictions done. And so that is now compounded on top of that by the number of bailiffs that may be available to actually exercise those things. So this is just the the buy to let and, and the tenants. We haven't probably hit the numbers of what is likely to happen with potential mortgage arrears and, and so forth, which will happen because, again, mortgages went up to such a high level that people are not able to deal with those um, as quickly as they've been going out. Now, if that was spread out, for example, for say <clears throat> the, the Bank of England was doing that over an annual basis, so it's a quarter of a percent, an annual thing was fine. But they've been doing it monthly, you know, and where's that money going to come from? So the next figures we'll be sharing with our viewers and our listeners will be the figures for repossessions, um, perhaps in the in the next six months. Or, so, yeah, I mean, if, if um, uh, and then if the government 
turns around and says, well, actually, we're going to have to put some sort of a moratorium on this, can't have all these people homeless. Um, the people that own these properties are going to be sitting there thinking, well, that's great, but who's going to pay for it? You know, so the landlords end, end up paying for something or someone to live in their property for, um, for no, no, no payment. They've got a current case here, which does sound like a real headache. So they're, rep they're representing, landlord actually representing this client. The client waited 16 weeks for the date of possession order, and that was granted on the 24th of January. And to the date the boy, uh, that the bailiff was uh, appointment was confirmed. So they got the possession order on the 24th of January, and the bailiff finally turned up on the 16th of May, 16 weeks later. However, the eviction date was set for the second of well, with the eviction dates set for the second of August. So they got the order on the 24th of January. The bailiff went in on the 16th of May, and the eviction date was set for the second of August. However, the landlord has this week received a phone call from the bailiff saying that due to the PPE issue, it could take a while to be rescheduled. The landlord has already waited more than six months to reach this point, with his tenant currently owing £20,942, and that's increasing by £81.91 pence per day. It sounds like a massive headache, doesn't it, Joe? Well, that's, that's one story, but that is now, I mean, it's 100 times. Um, you know, I've... I've spoken to many landlords who just now want their properties back what the government haven't really realized that when they get rid of all these landlords who want to get out of it all these people that are going to be evicted have got to be found another property somewhere somewhere else to live um so where are they going to do with that so they they the government aren't building enough houses um you know they've got no share of the section 106 from even developers developers have stopped building at this moment the cost of borrowing is so high that they're not building because they're not selling them as quickly as they are so the whole thing is you know coming to a little bit of a, a halt and until somebody you know wakes up and, and says you know we, we need to change this and i'm pretty confident that in the next six months we'll have that but it might be just six months a bit too late um it, it needs to have that action now otherwise you know there's going to be a, a whole bunch of issues so this chap, this one particular case, I mean, he's waited this long. He's got £20,000 debt. He wants out. He wants out because he wants to sell that property, which is costing him. He's paying taxes on it. He's paying a mortgage on it. And he's, the tenant's not paying it. And he's also paying legal costs, um, you know, uh, court costs, court fee, all of those things mm. that are just piling up um, and to get nothing out of it. So he's desperate to get out. Now, can you imagine that? you know, a thousand times, because basically there's all these landlords that got these people all over the country that are not able to make that. And I'm not saying they're doing it intentionally. They may not be in a position to make those payments because cost of living and everything else has gone up so high. They may not be in a choice. But if they are all evicted successfully, where are they going to go? Mm, you know, absolutely. that's the question. Where are they going to go? And I don't think the government's got that, you know, story right. So again, we're talking about asylum seekers who are coming in and, and spending government spending seven million pounds a, a day in paying hotel bills um, for asylum seekers. Well, the next thing you'll do is they might have got a barge, which is now not allowed to have the asylum seekers because nobody wants to have it docked in their dock. It's still sitting in the middle of the sea. Um, you know, the, the barge is not going to do it. So what are they going to do? Put these people that are being made homeless into a barge in the middle of the sea. It just, the whole thing is just not gelling at all. 
Um, but I'm sure somebody will wake up and find a solution. Landlord Action is uh, calling on the judges at the county courts to grant leave to transfer more eviction cases to, with serious arrears to the High Court uh, and share the burden of the rising workload. Um, but of course, in doing that, and that was something that was offered to this particular uh, client uh, who has got the £21,000 worth of debt, uh, but of course, you know, they're unwilling to take on even more costs, which is, you know, again, coming out of the landlord's pocket, to try and sort the situation out. Um, and uh, uh, um, these 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 cases uh, are, are really struggling. Well, one thing I was going to say to get to my point was that um, the government say that they're going to completely revolutionise and change the whole court system when Section 21 goes. Um, and I think they probably know that this is the situation currently. So it does need reform. But what's been really frightening, I think, is the fact that when the Renters' Reform Bill was announced, and it's being read at the moment, there's no detail in there at all about what they're going to do about the cases and the courts. Because they weren't paying this um, in their mind, and that's why you know, it's, it's behind. They haven't got the, the people, they've cut the a number of people, they've cut a number of bailiffs that are um, available to do this. The one bailiff in some places are doing, you know, different counties. They're doing three or four different counties. It's just a huge amount of work that they're having to do um, in order to do that. And they weren't prepared for it. It's as simple as that, really, Paul. You know, nobody bargained that this was going to be. But it has been a lot of things all at one time. Um, and all those things are, as I said, uh, cost of living is number one. People want out. I mean, they can have a renters reform as much as they like, but landlords do not want to have um, a hold of the properties on because the interest rates actually that they're having to pay on a buy to let is not even being covered by the rent that they're getting. So, you know, if it, start hurt, if it starts to hurt your own pocket, you, there comes a point when you think, well, I can't do this for nothing it's just not it's not i'm not in in this business to do it for nothing um so um but i think generally they just haven't been prepared for what is um been unleashed um at this moment through through the courts and the court costs are high you know um uh, and and even at the end of that we don't know if that resolve is going to be to your liking as a landlord i mean if you get to the point and and the judges have been told that you are not to um make people homeless then what happens you know um, that person is going to stay in there until they are found a suitable property to go to and that's a challenging task um, anyway one private bailiff firm says that the number of county court bailiffs uh, employed by the courts to attend evictions has been waning as government policy has affected team sizes, they say, uh, meaning some bailiffs now cover multiple courts, resulting in unmanageable workloads. The bailiffs simply don't have the time to wait, they say. So if there is a problem on the eviction day, they're moving on after 10 or 15 minutes, leaving cases unresolved. And the current wait time for possession, in some cases, is 37 weeks from claim to possession, which is nine months. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, does it? No, as I said, it, it, the whole the whole system is just is tumbling around them at this moment in time, and of course they need to get some direction and get that sorted. I mean, they would be well advised to speak to um, or get some guidance for people on on the ground, but of course they always choose people that have never had any experience in the reality of it, and 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 it's all about someone who has an accolade, but you might have a degree 
you know, in, in, in how to deal with housing crisis, but you've never actually been on the front line to deal with it. And all I'm saying is that they, they just need to you know, put a task together and understand what is happening on the ground. Otherwise, it's going to be like this. For, and it doesn't really matter, Paul, whether you're red or blue, uh, you know, whether you're conservative or Labour, you're going to have the same issues that are going to come to the table. And, you know, it's always a certain amount of money that is put in the pot and it's got to be delivered accordingly. But right now, it's not being proportioned in the correct way. Yes, the NHS is having to have it. So, I mean, we've had nothing but issues with pay rises for the last six months. And, you know, so th those every time somebody goes on a strike or, or doesn't want to work, it's just enough, you know, they might have the money up one way, but the other side, there's no money coming in because they're striking. So people are not working or they don't, don't want to do the job. So, you know, it's a payout, payout, payout time all the way through. So I think it's just a little bit of a, a challenging time. But, you know, on a positive note, if there is a positive note out of this, that people will always do well if they can get on the housing ladder. The property is one of the best form of savings that you're going to make. And it's a feel good factor because once you do have your home and you do own it, you know, albeit partly owned by the bank or the building society, it gives you a great pleasure to be able to say, well, this is mine and you put a heart and soul into it. And then the rest of the industry also does well around it. They say even the High Court enforcement officers are in short supply. Apparently 40% of them left the industry during COVID and they've not returned ever since. <laughs> Interesting why such a, a large amount of people left due to COVID, which uh, is a bit of a surprise. Anyway, we must move on to our final story of the week, which is another interesting one. UK homes are some of the smallest in the world, but not surprisingly, the most expensive. The average size of a home in the UK is among the smallest in the world, with home buyers in the country paying more for the property compared to other nations when calculated price per square foot, that dreaded calculation. This is done by a company called Moverly. They found that the average UK home comes in at just 818 square feet, one of the smallest property sizes globally. In fact, out of 19 nations analysed, only Russia and China and India had smaller properties on average. Australia, on the other hand, tops the leaderboard, uh, where the average home is 182% larger than the UK at a spacious 2,303 square feet. Other sizable spots, you probably guessed it, New Zealand, 2,303 square feet, United States, 2,164 square feet, and Canada, 1,948 feet, all between 138% and 166% larger than UK homes. What's interesting, though, is in Europe, properties in the Netherlands, France, Germany and Spain also proved more generous than the UK, both in terms of price and space. So interestingly, the average price of a home in the UK is currently £351 per square foot, far higher than the price of Germany, 236 square feet, 230 pounds rather per square foot, Canada 218, France 212, uh, Australia 208 and Spain 141 with the United States at 126 pounds per square feet. So we're paying 351, the States are paying 126. That's outstanding. Even London is £724 per square foot, which reflects the uh, high cost of the property in the capital. Interesting stats. Yeah, but not not surprising at all, um, you know, in terms of where those stats are. Um, I noticed, I think we have a comment somewhere from the, from the last um, from the last subject. But anyway, um, it's not surprising at all that we've had um, this sort of level of, um, of, of cost 
um, in order to purchase a home by square footage. You know, I've always said we're an island and as an island, we can only go up or go down. There's very limited space to go out. Um, and because of that, um, our prices are gonna be, the average size is right. Um, it's about 880, probably about 900 square feet. Our Victorian good old terraced houses are that size, give or take, uh, not including the roof space and any extensions at the back. The basic three bed mid terrace properties, circa uh, 880 to 900 square feet, which is quite interesting, really, isn't it? That um, when you look at that as a flat, as a flat sometimes at 700 square feet, it doesn't look as big as the house does on two floors. Because um, uh, the house, you know, we've all grown up as children in such properties um, and and again it's about space and when you look at our country the united kingdom from a bird's eye view from the top down you you and, and if you travel from the south to the north for example you'll find that as you travel down the m1 around you majority of it is countryside farmland waterways etc there's not much building going on and through the policies that the country has through green belt, green belt policy and all sorts of other policies it means we are restricted to the amount of space that we've got left to build and that is where supply and demand comes in the supply is somewhat limited the demand is huge for uh, people wanting to live in the united kingdom we know that because if you, even if you look at the stats recently from the number of people from the dinghies that are coming in every year you imagine how many of those are coming. So the demand is, is extraordinary, and therefore the supply is limited and the prices are going to be up. But nevertheless, people still find the wish and the will to want to own and buy their properties. And of course, the other places like the United States and New Zealand and so forth, they have more country space. So of course they build bigger um, and subsequently have more. So therefore the, they, the supply is actually perhaps oversupply. Demand is, is good, but not as, as exciting as being in the United Kingdom and other smaller uh, European countries. And so subsequently, the pounds per square footage is spread out evenly. Um, but then there are other costs that happen. When you look at the, you, you know, the average terraced house, you know, the cost of running an average terraced house is far less than your 2,300 plus square foot in New Zealand because it's on its own and therefore heating it and, and dealing with it are, are another way of um, having different costs on there. But I'm not surprised at all about the cost um, at £350 per square foot on the average is £700 per square foot in central London. Some parts of central London are just extraordinary. I mean, they're uncalculatable if there's such a thing because, you know, people will pay uh, extraordinary amount of money for properties there. I think recently I saw one in, uh, that was marketed in um, Regent's Park at something like, you know, a billion pounds, some ridiculous amount. I mean, how do you calculate that situation? God knows how many pounds per square foot that would be per room. But because we are an island, we can't go out. Um, we're falling the sea pretty much every direction. So we can only go up or, or go into the basement down. Um, and that happens a lot in London. Uh, a lot of people would now go into the basement. Um, and of course, uh, the high rises that are happening in London are because of those reasons. Um, so not, not, not surprise our value. But that then tells you, Paul, doesn't it? Like everything, every, every week, week in, week out, I talk about 
our value, our worth of our property and how we gauge it. And that tells you how valuable property in London and, and the UK is because we are limited to what we can build. Well, I'm pleased to say that we have a, 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 a perspective from our transatlantic partner. Morning all says, uh, <laughs> he says, in the US, they measure gross external. That's a 10% difference. The UK housing stock is older than Australia, uh, New Zealand and US. It's just what it is, says Guy. So the US, they measure it externally, not internally. So there's a difference of 10%. So that accommodates for some of the difference, I guess. And we're grateful to... Uh, to, to Guy for uh, putting that up for us. And uh, he adds, I think, with the cost of construction being so high at the moment, there are still many areas of the UK that you could not build the homes for the amount they sell for per square foot, even if you got the land free. Interesting point. Yeah, yeah, so, I agree with that. Yeah. Thank you, Guy, for your contributions as always. And uh, thank you to you for watching uh, Property Matters this Sunday. Uh, thank you, Joe. We'll uh, be back same time next week with another Property Matters.